0: Hi, I'm Spencer Krause. I've been building robots for over 20 years. In that time, I've seen a lot of interesting things, and I've heard a lot of interesting stories. Collaborative with Spencer Krause is a place where my colleagues and I can relax, have a drink, and talk about some of the crazier things we've seen at work and some of the experiences we've had that have gotten us to where we are today. Subscribe today to join the collaboration. Welcome to the Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Krause. Our guest today is Don Golding. Don is a space avionics engineer who's developed a lot of really cool hardware that's gone into space. Don, welcome to the pod.
1: Hey, I'm really happy to be here.
0: Really happy to have you on. Um, so what is that behind you? I, uh, I feel like that's a good place to start. Uh,
1: so <clears throat> um, I have 50 years experience in developing electronic uh, circuit boards, you know, circuits and that sort of thing. And, um, I'm kind of tired of PCs and they're, um, you know, you, you have to wait for them. You know, these are supposed to be gigahertz printed, you know, um, personal computers and they run so slow. It's to me from a hardware perspective, I'm designing my own computer. I'm designing my own custom processor using what's called a field um, programmable Gatorade or FPGA so I'm I'm wiping the computer science board clean and I'm starting with a whole new concept in computing that's awesome my little side project
0: this is a side project
1: yes <laughs> <laughs> full-time I, I um, design computers for like NASA missions
0: that's awesome so what is, the, I guess, the one you designed your own? Why don't we start there? Just because I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about it. Um.
1: So I call, I call it the Core 1. Um, it's And Core stands for CISC over RISC engine. So you remember in the 1990s, um, everyone said, hey, you know, let's reduce the instruction set. We used to have CISC, complex instruction set. Um that was a uh, big mainframes and stuff had complicated um, instructions and then they decided to go with risk. Now that was like a MIPs um, thing. Yeah. That's reduced instruction set computer. Um, I'm actually going back to CISC. but x86 the reason why CISC is too, right? the hardware yeah. is so fast. Now um, you can push complex opcodes into Silicon today. So you know we've we've been stuck in a Wintel jail <laughs> for, for 30 years, <laughs> and it's time for something fresh and new. And that's what that's what the Core One is all about. That's awesome. It's I'm just wiping the board clean, designing my own computer, my own microprocessor uh, with programmable opcodes, and um, it's going to be heavily. Uh, I'm designing it to run AI very efficiently. Yeah, I can imagine
0: if you're, you know, talking about like SHA-256. So what are some of the things you've worked on on space? I feel like that's the real reason uh, we came here is to hear some cool space stories.
1: So I I started with um, Made in Space out in uh, Silicon Valley um, in late 2018. And... um, Main in space was doing a lot of work with, um, like they have a 3d printer up in the ISS space station. Oh, cool. Yeah. And they 3d print tools and things for the astronauts. So when I first came to, um, uh, main in space, they, uh, the control board that ran the 3d printer was like six different boards. You know, they, they loved Arduinos. <laughs> it's <was laughs> yes. the first time I ever used an Arduino on a real project. It's um, wild. Arduinos are, are, are really not bad. They're great for people to get started with. But, you know, I was more familiar with, you know, having a C compiler and GCC and all this other stuff. Um,
0: yeah, it's definitely but, the best of its kind. Like I've seen a lot of those, you know, development boards, like like the basic stamp, and then there were some pick-based ones and a lot of attempts at doing what Arduino seems to have cracked. So it's it's good from that perspective, I agree.
1: Yeah, Arduino is is a very good way for people to start. So I don't I don't want to belittle it, um, but you know I've done a lot of professional stuff and uh, <laughs> just hadn't seen an Arduino before. It, I I couldn't you know come up with a reason why you shouldn't, but um, so anyway, um, <clears throat> they wanted a single board computer that could replace all those six boards and then update because they were using, um, a 16 bit, uh, um, processor. Um, and they wanted to go up to the the 32 bit. So I designed a 32 bit processor board and I'm an FPGA guy and they couldn't spell FPJs there. And (laughs) so, I, I kept nudging them. I said, would you let me put an FPGA on the board? You know, I'll just put it on, on the side. It'll be a little co-processor. And <laughs> we can do some IO magic and stuff. And he's, okay, all right, Don. So, pat me on the head said, go, go to your corner and go ahead and get make the board. So, I did, and I put an FPGA on there. <clears throat> so, um, that is, all the ISS uh, experiments that I'm aware of used that board. From then on, I took me, took me about six or eight months to design the board oh, cool. and it threw it over the wall. I was only electrical engineering, didn't let me do any software. I was too busy. They gave me too many electrical engineering projects to work on. And then, um, and then they came up to me one day and said, uh, we just got a huge project, $74 million, Arconaut, Arconaut 1 project or we're going to 3d print a uh, 10 meter beam in space. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's going to be, uh, I think it was hundred millimeters on a side. Let's see, it was five inches. So what is that? Y- you do the math, <laughs> <It's like laughs> I guess that's probably well change. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like 12 or something, 12 centimeters, but anyway, so it's a, a lattice beam that 3d printed and they told me to design the computer. I said, okay, great. I never designed a space computer before, but I, I worked for Panasonic Avionics. I, I worked on commercial aircraft entertainment systems. When you watch um, CNN or you know one of the live uh, live TV on an aircraft, that was a, another computer I designed. Oh, cool! Because Panasonic Avionics has about an eighty or ninety percent market share in in flight entertainment. That's awesome. So. <clears throat> Yeah, I worked on the team um, that did that. Anyway, um, so I started, and I love—I absolutely love a new, new, new challenge, new projects, especially if I don't know anything about them, and I and I have to go out, and learn, and become at least you know um, knowledgeable, if not an expert, during the project. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I like that sort of thing as well. So. <clears throat> So I started digging into it and I'm, I'm reading all this stuff on space and i are talking about radiation and bit flipping, bit flipping as single event, uh, upset as EU um, and all this stuff. And, um, radiation is such a harsh, I mean, uh, space is such a harsh environment. There's radiation, there's little, um, little atoms float, you know, flying around at the speed of light that'll blast your circuit, you know, and all kinds of stuff. So I'm digging into it. And, um, it, and I go, I, it seems like we should build a hundred K K rad computer. I, was, I wasn't the team lead. There was another
0: guy that they hired. Now what is a hundred K rad to know? Just cause I'm not like a radiation expert. Like
1: it's a lot of radiation. So a okay. hundred K rad, you can basically, if your if you're, uh, electronics can handle 100K RAD, you can go to the moon. You could go on deep space missions.
0: Oh, cool. It covers
1: about 90% of NASA's requirements. So just think of it as. What are the it's other 10%?
0: Deep. What's that? I said, what are the other
1: 10%? Uh, so that's called RAD Hard. And there's actually an FPGA out there that my microchip makes. And um, it is rat hard. It uses fuses. It they blow fuses in the chip, and that's how they configure the FPGA.
0: <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So that's you just you. It's burned in forever if you do that. It,
1: and if you screw up, you throw the chip away, and it costs forty grand. Yeah, you would have to. Jeez. <laughs> so um, yeah, we didn't use that one. We used the flash phase that you could reprogram. So so anyway, I said, okay. Yeah, let's put a hundred KRAD in the spec. Right? My team lead said, oh yeah, that'll be fine. We're just gonna be in LAO, uh, low earth or orbit. And um, that should be fine for that. <laughs> and then um, NASA assigned some NASA engineers to our program as consultants. And they said, how come you're a hundred KRAD? You only need 30. <laughs> well, I already designed the computer. Hey, <laughs> <So, laughs> it's not gonna hurt. so anyway um so it's a 100k rad computer the computer is not going to be the thing that fails um there's a there's a very interesting uh history on this radiation effects did you know that nasa has found that some blue screen of death problems with pcs were caused by cosmic particles
0: wait Uh, here on earth Really? Collaborative with Spencer Krause is sponsored by SKA Custom Robots and Machines. If you're in the market for robotics contract engineering services, please consider hiring SKA Custom Robots and Machines. They sponsor this podcast and solve some of the toughest engineering problems in the world. SKA Custom Robots and Machines can be found at www.ska.solutions.
1: There was actually an incident with an airliner and it dropped 4,000... 96 feet. That's a magic number.
0: It is a power of two.
1: One of the high order bits got flipped by a radiation and, and it dove. It, it went like at a 45 degree angle. People flew out of their seats and they're, and they, they got it on the ground and they're testing all the, the electronics. They can't find it, can't find it anywhere they reboot you know reboot the thing and it cleared it and and they finally figured out it was one of these particles hit hit the memory inside and and flipped um that one bit that's wild so that's uh 4096 is uh, let's see so um 256 is 8 bits 512 9 10 is 1000 so it's going to be like the 12th bit. Yeah, so the 12th sense. bit flipped in memory and caused the plane to dive 4,000 feet. That's wild. So this stuff is real. Now, if you think it's So it's that's bad, what, like the autopilot
0: the was earth. tracking where the altitude was supposed to be. Like it must have been, right? Like your target. Because it's not going to freak out your sensor. So, yeah. that's Well, I think it was in the sensor code.
1: Yeah, it but it, it's has to, it has to have been the
0: set point, though, right? For the control algorithm uh, that that got flipped, like it, it probably forgot where its set point was. Oh
1: yeah, that yeah. that's true. Is you're right. It's probably the the set point. But um, yeah, so so th- these are real stories that it and the atmosphere attenuates nineties plus percent, and ninety nine percent of these things from hitting the Earth. So you can imagine. You know, that space is, you know, a hundred or several hundred times more of a problem. This radiation and particles flying around in space, the design avionics, you know, electronics for up there. And, um, so, so we designed to use all hundred K rad components and, um, it's really, really robust computer. That's
0: awesome. So then, you did that, you did that um, in eight months. You were able to design that, or
1: uh, I went from concept to first PC board in about it was about eight months. That's wild. Yeah, it was about eight months. How many and, layers yeah, of, of board? On it. Hmm?
0: How many layers of board, if I can ask?
1: Uh, that one wasn't too bad. I think I did that in uh, six layers. Nice. No, no, I'm sorry, eight layers, eight layers.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the board I'm working on now is 10 layers, but it I'm putting a computer that's more powerful than the Arcanaut computer. The Arcanaut computer was on a printed circuit board. Um, so in space, they call them Use like one U, two U, three U. One U means it's 100 millimeters on a side, which is basically four inches. Yeah. And um, that's where your CubeSats, so that's the, the, the physical. And that's how big those are, is they're
0: 100-millimeter cube? Yes. And then if you have so a 3 That's called a 1U. And then if you have a 2U, that's like two of those smashed together, right, is my understanding. Right. Okay. So um, so this was actually a
1: 3U board. Um, the, the board that I'm working on right now, and I just finished um, this afternoon about an hour before our our uh, podcast here it's i'm putting as much circuitry as i put on the arcanet one (laughs) in a a four inch square board you know 100 100 millimeter on a side and then you can stack the boards and um so there'll be a cpu board and then you'll have daughter cards that stack vertically and you can build up cubesats um I also was uh, the principal investigator on a NASA SBIR last year where NASA wanted um, a a tiny company that I work for. And uh, they wanted us to talk to everyone in the space business and find out what kind of avionics they need, you know, how, how many KRADS they need um, cost and all this other, all these other things. And while I was doing that, I uh, did a web search on um, satellite failures and I, I ran across this article that was, came out in 2016 and it was by NASA and between 2011 and 2015, 42.6% of CubeSats and small sats failed. They didn't complete their mission. And I went, holy cow, you know, I've been... Because I I earn the side of making something robust. I want to build a computer that never hiccups.
0: You don't want to be on the wrong side of that forty two point six percent,
1: right? Yeah. I would shoot myself if my stuff had that failure rate. I would <laughs> say I need to do, I need to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the CubeSat people, because they don't have a lot of money, the the FPJ the space rated FPJ is 40 to $50,000 for a single chip. Now you have other space rated chips around it. So you're gonna spend, you know, 120,000 on, just on chips to start with. The CubeSat people don't wanna spend over 50. So they go to Digikey and buy parts and they just pray and they send it up.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: I talked to a CubeSat, uh, someone that, that built a CubeSat um, recently, and they said, "Yeah, it lasted two weeks up there."
0: <laughs> Brutal.
1: Um, yeah. So anyway, we did a we did a survey of what people wanted, and um, we didn't get a phase two. So I went looking for work, and I found this this great job at Next Stage. and we're we're designing what I consider is the ultimate off the shelf computer for the space business, because you could use it in a CubeSat. It's also networkable. Oh, cool. So you could use it in a small sat and maybe a small sat is a larger one. You know, it might be that as big as a refrigerator, gotcha. refrigerator, for example. Um, but that's a small sat. Um, so you can put these in, in, um, in a small sat or just a regular spacecraft, and you can network them together. And I am um, I'm also inventing my own network. Um, FPJs have a super high-speed serial line, um, pins coming out of it that can go like 12, um, 12 gigabits per second. Nice. It's, it's insane how fast they are, which means you have to use RF connectors. But you don't need to go that fast in a network. Um, The microchip FPGA can go down, can actually throttle down the Surgees down to 250 megahertz, which is fine for high level commands running around the spacecraft. So I've designed um, a two-wire network instead of, you know, uh, Ethernet is, is like eight wires, right? It is, but Um, you can,
0: you can get it down to two, like two wire. Ethernet seems to be popular in automotive and some commercial industrial applications. Now
1: you can get it down to two wire. I was uh, talking to Lockheed Martin on a zoom call one time and they really wanted a two wire solution and they were talking about, you know, using a fly, which is, you know, uh, um, is like, you know, TCIP um, type protocol stuff, but there's a there's a protocol that was around during the '90s. It's called ARCNET, and in aerospace and um, it's used in commercial aircraft and <clears throat> military. And they call it um, a rink and it's basically ARCNET. And what ARCNET does is if all the computers are daisy chained together, so you know, <clears throat> and then each packet has a header that says what CPU is going to, and if the CPU gets it, it's not to them; it just forwards it on. So you can go down to two two wires very easily using an ARCnet.
0: Do you get a um, cascading protocol. failure though, if like one of them gets knocked out and can't forward it on?
1: Yeah. Um, well, when you, when you look at um, Ethernet. Ethernet works well up to about sixty <clears> percent <throat> bandwidth if you have mul- if you have multiple computers, and then you start getting collisions.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: And during the '90s, when when people were were pushing um, Ethernet, I said I really don't like that because you have, you know you have to you have to detect the collision, and then you have to do something about it, you have to retransmit and do all this complexity, which is is like a, is like a train, you know, it just, the cars are just going along, the data is just going along the, the wires. And it's really robust. <clears throat> and it in the early 90s, it was as fast as uh, Ethernet. Now, of course, Ethernet went to more, more wires or up to, you know, um, eight pairs now. And um, so Ethernet is faster. But ArcNet is more reliable. And I always go for reliability. But I don't need a PHY. I can, I can hook directly up to the FPJ pin. You don't need an external chip. FPJs have a very high speed serial interface that can go up to 12 um, gigabits per second called CERDES. And it's basically you know it's a serial a data link. Um and it uses um, you know, plus and minus voltages like like LBDS. <clears throat> and if you if you um, have a data signal that's using the bipolar um, voltages, if, if noise hits the wire, then then it raises the voltage on both wires and and basically it doesn't see it because it's looking at the difference between the two. Which is unaffected. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, it's a very robust. And so I'm designing uh, kind of an ARCnet style uh, network to network my my computer boards together. The user will just be caught. You know, they'll have a device driver that they just said, you know, send out this data, you know, build this packet, send it out, and you're done. You know, so the C programmers won't know the hardware. It'll just work. Awesome. But... Um, in space, um, you know, ounces matter it, I just looked this up the other day to put a cubes out in orbit of one, uh, one U, which is, you know, four inch square cube is $175,000 today. And a, a two, a two U um, unit, which is double the size is 275,000. So. You know, size and weight matters a lot in space until Elon gets Starship going. <laughs> <laughs> All bets are off when, 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 he gets Starship going, that's revolutionary. Uh, we'll be living in space and having lunch up there.
0: <laughs> Sounds like fun.
1: So getting back to the board I'm designing back here, because yeah. I'm doing the same thing with this board. Um, what I want to ultimately design is this board where it's like the Star Trek computer. You talk to it in English. C was invented back in 1963 uh, at the AT&T, you know, labs. And about three years before, a fellow named Charles Moore was working at the Kitt Peak Telescope in Arizona. And he was... Writing code in assembler language, and he started writing basically what what we call today as structured programming, which means you you call routines. You don't jump. The program doesn't jump around. It calls routines. <clears throat> and um, software is a lot easier to debug when you call a routine than if you jump from one place to another, like go tos and BASIC.
0: Yeah, go tos suck. I mean, yeah.
1: So he actually created a language back in 1960 called FORTH, F-O-R-T-H. He was going to call it F-O-R-U-T-H, but the mini computer he's programming on could only take five characters for a file name. <laughs> so he dropped the U, and he called it FORTH. <clears throat> FORTH is a very interesting language. Um, I had a whole series of robots, robotics and, uh, that I sold. I sold over 2,000 of them. And they were all based on the fourth language. What fourth is, is interactive. So, you know, um, in the C world, you want interactive, use Java. If you want compiled, use C. If you want object oriented, use C. And then there's all kinds of other derivatives. In fourth, you can do everything, all of those things. And it runs on an 8 bit micro just fine with very little memory that's interesting so, it, <clears throat> hmm?
0: so that's interesting
1: yeah um up until about 1990 fourth was actually the king of embedded systems <clears throat> because you just didn't have enough memory to run c you didn't have enough cpu power then during the 1990s you know when the pc really started taking off um you know schools between AT&T and, and, you know, the schools were teaching C. And FORTH was in, wasn't invented by a computer science guy. <laughs> it was invented by a programmer, you know, who basically taught himself how to program. So FORTH <clears throat> was kind of pushed aside. But the thing about FORTH is you don't create functions, you create words. and it's just like using a chat box it's a a, identical to using a chat box so you create all these words and each word is a function of your program you can incrementally compile you compile one word and and you send that word to the fourth computer It, it it gets interpreted and incrementally compiled and now that new word is part of the vocabulary the computer knows and it does it in a a fraction of a second. Whereas with C, you edit all the source code and you have to compile it and you have to create a binary blob and then you have to JTAG the processor that takes, it take you know, five, 10 seconds or minutes, depending how big it is. And if you change one line of code, you got to go through that whole process again. With fourth, you don't do that. Once you have a fourth engine, you just send the, the source code down and it it gets parsed and compiled. I find it fascinating, and and Forth is considered an obscure language today, although this is based on a Forth processor. Oh, cool. And the Forth processor is inside the chip, including the interpreter and the compiler. So you you basically have two lines transmit and receive from a serial port, and you can talk to that computer and use another computer that has a terminal running on it, or this also has a display that you can plug into it and a keyboard, and you don't have to use any other computer to program it. Nice. Unlike um, you know, see. So where I was getting at with Star Trek, is ultimately. I want to build a Star Trek computer that you just talk to it. So in the beginning with this guy, you will type to it. (laughs) And then later on, we'll add a speech to text conversion, which you can buy boards that do that today. And then you could literally talk to the thing and program it using your voice. Very cool. One of the disadvantages of 4th is it, the reason it's so, um, compact like you can compile a force system and as little as 4k of you know binary and then you d- you JTAG a processor and now it's running forth a cool. full force system is about 12k and then from there on you don't use any of your uh, your normal tools and you just do everything in forth and through a terminal program um, <clears throat> what I want to do is why are computer languages so primitive? Why can't remember I, t- I talked to you earlier about the processor and you can add your own opcode like a SHA 256 function? Yeah. And as an opcode.
0: Using the FPGA. So it's
1: yeah. in the FPGA and it's it's a fourth word. You can interactively, you know, or execute it using this guy. Um, so what I want to do is um, I want to build that Star Trek style computer using this and build on top of Forth. Wait, One of the ways that Forth gets its efficiency is that there's a stack in every CPU, and C uses the stack. So when you have a local variable um, in C that you define within the function, that's, that's a local variable. It uses the stack. It puts that data on the stack um when it enters the function and then you process and then when you exit the function it clears the data off the stack forth explicitly uses the stack so if I say one space two space plus space dot which is print so you you give forth the data first and then the action right so it's not infix notation it's it's um, reverse Polish notation. <clears throat> I'm going to build on this a high level language that's going to make it a lot easier and make the code a lot easier to read. Fourth code can be a little challenging to read. You s- you'll see swap, drop, you know, nip, tuck. You know, what is that, right? So it's another reason why fourth kind of lost favor, but. I've implemented a 32-bit fourth on this guy with only 2,600 logic units. They're called LUTs on an FPGA. The basic FPGA on here is 25,000 LUTs, so I could fit, you know, dozens of 32-bit fourth computers on there if I wanted to, but that's not the optimal way to to use it. Yeah, makes sense. Um, So FPGAs, let's talk about them for a minute. They're massively parallel machines, um, so you you get the manufacturer's tools, the tool set, Like in the case of Microchip, it's called Libero, and you can code. It looks like code, you know, it looks like executable code to you, but it's not. It co- what it does is when it compiles and then synthesizes in the chip. It's creating a circuit that's running your algorithm that you're describing in, in code, and System Verilog looks just like C. So, C people that know C can pick up System Verilog pretty
0: quickly. Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing about about FPGAs is. Um, they have what they call modules and each module is a separate little computer on the chip. You could have a thousand of them on the chip running in parallel at the same time, all running at 250 megahertz. Now do the math on that gigahertz my butt. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's terahertz, you know? (laughs) So, um, So FPJs were always very expensive. They were hard to use. Um, One of the other things about this, when I get it all working, it's not working yet today, so don't call me and say I want to buy one of these. Um, I'll take two. It's going to be a few months. Um, I will contact you when they're ready. Yeah, absolutely. But with this, you're going to be able to really get into FPJs a lot, easier and faster because you're only making a, one opcode. You're changing one thing in the, in the source code. You get the full source code, by the way. It's open source of the core one system.
0: <clears throat>
1: and uh, what I'm hoping is we create a community and people are generating their own opcodes and sharing them with other people. So you can, you can pick all these opcodes that you want to do your application, put them in there, synthesize um, the chip downloading your FPJ. And th- now you have a computer that that has all these new words in it. <clears throat> and I will tell you that um, source level debugging in C, is really a pain com- versus like just interactively typing a word and feeding it parameters and press enter and it executes. And so- then you can go and um, look at your, your variables and see how they changed. You could write little test words really simply and easily.
0: And fourth, do um, you ever have to get rid of like old words? Like if you write a bunch of test words, does that clutter things up? Can you just delete explicitly stuff? That's kind of cluttering up your, your memory as it were.
1: Yeah. So, <clears throat> uh, there's actually two ways to do that. So you can in fourth, you can forget. So you can forget, you, you tell it the name of the word you want to forget to. Let's say you, you've defined 10 words. Uh, let's say you put a stub word in there and you just call it, um, you know, end or something like that and, um, or te- call it test. And then you define all these test words and you say, forget, forget test. It'll forget all the words that were defined plus the word test. And, and that gets rid of your test words. Another way is, which you can't do this in C is called a deferred word. You can actually go into the compiled code and change it.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: (laughs) It with forth. Yes. You can decompile a word. We called it C S E E. If you say C in the name of the word, it decompiles it and shows you how it's coded.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: (laughs) And you could, you could actually replace. Um, you could replace a function inside of your code by making a de- deferred word. So let's just say that you uh, you know that there's a, there's a word that's going to be on your low, lower level list, and all these words are built on top of it, and you know you want to change that word down here. So what you do is you make what's called a deferred word because fourth, everything is a pointer to fourth. It's just there's... Pointers in C are like maddening, right? Um, and fourth is everything's a pointer and it's so simple. You know, it's just a memory location. You just It's a number. You just fetch and store data at that memory location. End of story. You don't go through all of these asterisks and ampersands and all this other crap, you know, to get at a memory location like you do in C. And I'm a C programmer, by the way, guys. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not belittling, belittling C, I use
0: C. I know, um, you're talking C a lot C of C smack C. on pointers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, um, so what you do is, the way that Forth compiles is it looks in the dictionary at the address of where the word is defined. So basically the dictionary is a link list um, there's some other more advanced ways of doing it, but think of it like a link list. Sure. So the word is defined, and then the memory location after that is the compiled, is the addresses of the words that it calls, or it's literals that are um, compiled in. You know, your literals are your numbers, right? Yeah. And then um, when, you, when it hits semicolon, so um, it terminates and it's all compiled. So what you can do is you can you can create a a word that is just a memory address. And you can take the it's called the code field address, it's the address of the word that you want to work on. And you put it in there. And then you you create the word that um, that you would normally um, use, let's just say as update screen or something like that. Um, What update screen does it goes and grabs the the memory address of the word that you're working on and executes it real simple. But now what you can do is you can keep defining new versions of it. And then you store the new address that it got compiled at in that memory variable. And then so it's like an alias, execute it.
0: huh? it's kind of like an alias. It's like uh, like the thing that you call where you can have it point different places, depending on what you're trying to get it to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you can change the address and, and use the more, the more current, um, you
0: know, version. And then it will be updated everywhere that called the, um, I can't yep. remember what the name for it was, but that's yeah. right. So
1: all the words that are built on top of it are calling that, that new word. So let me show you where, where, where this is really important. And I've asked, I'm in the space business. I've asked a couple dozen space people. You have a hundred robots out in Pluto that are doing some mining or something or something or other, and you need to update the software. Your data link is 750 bytes per second. Are you gonna send up a C compiled binary blob of <laughs> seven seven hundred and fifty bytes per second? It'll take days for it to get up there, and you have 100 robots to update. With, with this and using the fourth um, method, you would send up, like, the, the, the source code of the, of the function that you want to replace, and maybe it's 160 bytes, and it would go up there in a fraction of a second, and it would compile while the spacecraft is running, and then in one clock cycle, it'll switch to the new code. Oh, cool. So I have asked all my space friends that program, I get a blank stare or a laugh. I've never had anyone explain to me how you do it. Well, one way to do it is <clears throat> you put Linux up there. <laughs> you have Linux and all the your compiler tools and everything else, which remember how expensive space rated hardware was. Yep. <laughs> so if you're going to run Linux, you know, you need a 32-bit RISC-V or 64-bit RISC-V, and you you need all this memory, and it's going to cost you, you know, a half million dollars for the computer components. And you know, then you could send up source code and have it compiled, but you still are going to be JTAGging that processor and that that spacecraft during the JTAG process is going to be not controlled, uncontrolled.
0: Yeah, completely. People
1: start, you know, rotating in space until it, it wakes up and then it's going to have to realign itself with a fourth base system you don't miss a beat it, one clock cycle it changes out the code
0: now i guess as we're kind of nearing the end is there anything you want to plug on the way out that you just want to leave people with or in, an ad for something you're doing um
1: just uh the, the core one i think it's going to be revolutionary you can get your hands on the latest technology Playing around with FPJs, intelligent machines. <clears throat> we're going to be putting um, the seven billion parameter Llama uh, um, set on the board. It'll just fit in the in the flash memory I have on there. So the machine will be able to to be able to utilize that. Um, I'm all about AI, so that's where we're going. We'll we'll have a podcast when I have something to show you.
0: Yeah, I would like that. The core one
1: actually is working today. The the interpreter and the compiler work. Awesome. In the core system.
0: I'm I'm definitely excited to see it live. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, looking forward to the next one.
1: It's been fun. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you've made it this far, chances are you'll like other episodes too. Collaborative with Spencer Krauss is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Subscribe today to get notified when the latest episodes release and support the channel. Collaborative with Spencer Kraus is sponsored by SKA Custom Robots and Machines. If you're in the market for robotics contract engineering services, please consider hiring SKA Custom Robots and Machines. They sponsor this podcast and solve some of the toughest engineering problems in the world. SKA Custom Robots and Machines can be found at www.ska.solutions. Thanks again and see